Good evening. The mayor gets COVID, a new general for Ukraine, and a setback for reforming cash bail. What's next for the criminal justice reform? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, April 11th, 2022. Mayor Eric Adams tested positive for COVID-19 over the weekend and is isolating at Gracie Mansion. He's one of 50 people who tested positive after attending the Gridiron Club dinner in Washington on April 2nd, where neither a mask or vaccination were required to attend. He was also seen maskless at the opening night of the 2022 Real Abilities Film Festival on Thursday. He addressed the media today remotely. I was uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 infection on uh, yesterday. Uh, Returning from uh, Albany, I woke up Sunday morning and I had a raspy voice. And with my normal tradition, every day I attempt to take a COVID test each morning. Uh, For the most part, I try to do it every morning. And when the test came back negative, I made the determination uh, because of the raspiness of my voice uh, to reach out to Helton Hospital. Uh, They arranged for me to take a rapid PCR, to take a PCR test. I was able to uh, have the PCR test come back within a few hours later and determined that I was, uh, I had COVID, uh, we tested positive for COVID. And that was the mayor earlier today. Uh, the number of U.S. COVID uh, cases has been rising in recent weeks, including in New York, fueled by the more transmittable Omicron BA2 subvariety, which is now the dominant COVID strain in the country. Adams, who said last week he takes an at-home rapid test every day, has been seen at numerous public events without a mask in recent days. The new mayor has been a loud proponent of rescinding COVID restrictions and reopening the city following the Omicron wave, and just last week noted that he had never tested positive for COVID or felt symptoms, which he suggested might have been in part a result of his quasi-vegan diet. We'll have more on the mayor's day later in the newscast. In national news, in Puerto Rico, power has been restored to 90% of customers by the private electric company that serves the island following an island-wide outage that affected about 170,000 people blamed on a fire at a power transformer. Protests were prompted. The scenes on the island uh, were reminiscent of the aftermath of Hurricane Maria that struck in 2017. And in Ukraine, Russia appointed General Alexander Dvorkinov, uh, pardon me, Alexander Dvorkinov, one of its most seasoned military chiefs, to oversee a new phase in the war that appears to be targeting the eastern part of Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian military command said that on Sunday, Russian forces shelled government-controlled Kharkiv and sent reinforcements towards Izium in the southeast in a bid to break Ukraine's defenses. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the new general has a reputation for brutality. He and other senior Russian leaders have shown in the past, and you mentioned Syria as one example, have shown clearly in the past their disregard for avoiding civilian harm, their utter disregard in many ways for the laws of war and the brutality with which they conduct and prosecute their operations. There's a track record here before Ukraine of Russian brutality. 
You've seen it on display every single day of the last 46 days, the brutality that the Russians are capable of. We're seeing it today as you and I are talking here. You can see it today. Sadly, we can all expect those same brutal tactics, that same disregard for civilian life and civilian infrastructure will probably continue as they now focus in a more geographically confined area in the Donbass. This could augur in for a more protracted and a very bloody next phase here of this conflict. We can certainly say by what we've seen in the past, we're probably turning another page in the same book of Russian brutality. And again, I'll say it. I know you get tired of me saying it, but I'll say it again. This war could end today. Mr. Putin could do the right thing now. He could sit down in good faith with President Zelensky immediately, and this war could end. In related news, uh, Russian ambassador to the United uh, to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, told a meeting at the Schiller Institute in New York. It's a group associated with the late hard right perennial candidate Lyndon LaRouche. That Russia isn't interested in war; it just wants some respect from the West. Its military machine is, in fact, on our doorstep. Lately, NATO's military activity has considerably intensified. The forces of the North Atlantic Alliance are exploring the Black and Baltic Seas. The combined military expenditures of NATO countries exceed Russia's defenses budget by at least 25 times. Any system of European security must take into account the national interests of all states, including, of course, Russia. All we have demanded was respect and recognition of Russia's national interests. Today, it's extremely important to achieve the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, to consolidate Kyiv's nuclear-free status and its commitment to international agreements on the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. There should be no threats to the Russian Federation coming from the Ukrainian territory. This is the objective of our special military operation. It is extremely important that Western countries stop adding fuel to the fire by pumping Kyiv's regime with weapons. To conclude, I would like to recall the ideas of an American statesman, former Secretary of State Harold Kissinger. In his book, Diplomacy, he predicted the failure of the so-called Wilsonian foreign policy model of spreading democracy. Let me quote. However powerful America is, no country has the capacity to impose all its preferences on the rest of mankind. America will have to learn to operate in a balance of power system. Kissinger also said, Russia-American relations desperately need a serious dialogue on foreign policy issues based on mutual respect of each other national interests. Dear friends, let me assure you that our country is always open to interaction of this kind. Right. And the president also announced the nomination of Steve Dettelbeck, U.S. attorney in Ohio from 2009 and 2016 to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. Ghost guns are an increasing problem for U.S. law enforcement. They're often assembled from kits, don't contain serial numbers and are sold without background checks, making them easy to acquire and difficult to trace. In 2021, there were about 20,000 suspected ghost guns reported to the ATF as having been recovered by law enforcement and criminal investigations, a tenfold increase from 2016, according to statistics shared by the White House. 
Mayor Eric Adams in New York commended President Biden on his decision to use his regulatory powers to clamp down on ghost guns. Today, he uh, made that uh, uh, that commendation public. Today, the United States Department of Justice is making it illegal for a business to manufacture one of these kits without a serial number. Illegal. Illegal for a licensed gun dealer to sell them without a background check. And starting today, weapons like the one used in Saugus High School and to ambush deputies with us to, that are here with us today are being treated like the deadly firearms they are. And if somebody sells a ghost gun to a federally licensed dealer, for example, a pawn shop, that dealer must make the firearm and mark it with a serial number before reselling it. All of a sudden, it's no longer a ghost. It has a return address. It's going to help save lives, reduce crime, and get more criminals off the streets. And this rule is only part of our strategy to go after ghost guns. In February, the Department of Justice launched a, nation, a national gun, ghost gun enforcement initiative, intensifying our efforts to bring cases against those who use ghost guns illegally. We're teaching investigators and prosecutors best practices, how to build these cases, and assigning a coordinator in each of the ATF field divisions to serve as a point person for helping federal, state, and local law enforcement go after ghost guns. If you commit a crime with a ghost gun, expect federal prosecution. Not just state, expect federal prosecution. This rule is an important step. And that's the president speaking earlier today. And Mayor Eric Adams commended, as I said, President Biden on his decision to use his regulatory powers to clamp down on ghost guns, on ghost guns. This year, 163 of the weapons have been picked up by uh, New York City police, about 10 percent of the total. The mayor answered a question during his news conference about whether uh, it was worth all the brouhaha to go after just 10 percent of the guns. The difference between ghost gun, which is 10%, and 10% is a percentage too much. 10% of a number of 1,800 guns, that's 180 guns. 180 guns. One of those 180s took the life of a 16-year-old child. That's a crisis for me. One illegal gun is a crisis. But then when you look at the fact that these ghost guns, they do not have to travel through the iron pipeline or come up. I-95, they can be manufactured right inside someone's home. That is a crisis. That is a new element to fighting guns that we have to be prepared for. And that was the mayor earlier today. And uh, New York State's, uh, in more local news, New York State's Democratic-controlled Senate and Assembly gave final approval early Saturday to a $220 billion spending plan after debating and voting throughout the night, putting an end to a stalemate with the governor that delayed the budget past its April 1st deadline. Not conducive to transparency, the legislature took key votes in the middle of the night with the Senate wrapping up business at 4.45 in the morning. Hochul was able to secure changes to the state's criminal justice laws and $600 million for a new referendum for the NFL's Buffalo Bills, her home town team, despite aggressive opposition from progressive lawmakers and activists. 
The budget includes a $7 billion boost in child care subsidies spread over the next four years, increases for education and higher wages for home health workers, and clears the way for a vote on a $4 billion environmental bond. Nevertheless, the budget failed to include measures sought by progressives, expanding health coverage for undocumented immigrants, and ending the excluded workers fund that provided money to workers ineligible for pandemic-era unemployment assistance. The budget also took a swipe at the 2019 criminal justice reform that eliminated cash bail for nonviolent offenses in the state, increasing the list of offenses now subject to cash bail. The uh, governor also replied to uh, questions about uh, plans to uh, make it easier for prosecutors to deliver evidence to defense attorneys late, which is uh, something that has led to a lot of cases being thrown out, but which advocates say uh, is just at the basis of fairness that the uh, accused should see the evidence against them as early as the prosecutors get it. The uh, mayor spoke about the bail, uh, about that aspect of her bail law the other day. We also had a problem with the discovery statute, and we were able to work out the situation by listening to the public defenders and listening to the district attorneys. And they came up with a thoughtful approach that we all had a lot of conversations about uh, to make sure that we could fix it so hate crimes and domestic violence and other were not dismissed so easily and cases were no longer going to be automatically dismissed if prosecutors failed to make uh, a late disclosure, which is the case now. A lot of cases are being dismissed if they operate in good faith. And Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin added this wasn't a whole wholesale change of bail laws, but just fixing a few problems. There are root causes that are key to some of the issues that we're seeing, poverty, lack of job opportunities, there are mental health issues, education system, we can go on and on and on about some of the key fundamental factors. We've said, let's invest, invest in some of those root causes, workforce development. We're putting significant money into trying to give ch children jobs, giving young people jobs, investing in mental health beds, trying to doing both, investing in root causes, dealing with some of the fundamental issues on the ground, while also dealing with key accountability measures with a scalpel, right? Not with a sledgehammer. We've been very targeted because we don't want to over-criminalize in any way, shape or form people of color. And that was Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin. Scott Levy, Managing Director of Policy at the Bronx Defender, says the changes these bail rollbacks do little more than the uh, than further criminalize poverty, throwing people in jail pretrial on petty theft charges. Hochul had wanted more aggressive changes in bail laws, but Democratic lawmakers were able to scale back Hochul's original proposals. Victor Pate is a formerly incarcerated person and has been engaged in numerous criminal justice reform campaigns as a volunteer since being released. He's part of the New York Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement. He spoke with WBAI earlier today. We got a new governor. <laughs> That's definitely what happened. And of course, with the new administration and the connections and the, the other people that are connected with the new administration, you have a different mindset, but you also have different allegiances. Politically, the reality of it all, pulling the covers back and being fully transformative, when you have electors that are elected by the people, which is, means that they're supposed to represent the interests of the people, the representation of the people now is transferred to the people who helped them get into the office. And I'm talking about finances and support from people who actually have influence within our system. What happens next? It's like everything is in the dark because even though we know 
bail reform, there has been some reforms to bail reform, but then they also mention other criminal justice reform. Well, what are those criminal justice reforms? Why is it such a secret that you haven't said specifically what those changes to the criminal justice reforms are? What additional reforms have you agreed to do? It's not just bail reform, but there's also other components of criminal justice reform of the successes that have happened with Discovery um, and with the Raise the Age. So Discovery and Raise the Age. Discovery and Raise the Age basically has related to the amount of time that the prosecutor's offices have to turn over the material evidence to the defense, which oftentimes has a lot to do with the actual outcome of a person's case, whether they be found not guilty. And we found out that because of the fact that the prosecutor's office holds evidence, this is used as a tactic to pressure people into taking guilty pleas over and over and over again. And they was holding. So so the evidentiary rule was voted on in 2019 that gave the prosecutors a specific amount of time in which they must turn over evidentiary evidence against the person that's accused. And they give them a certain time. So that was a success. Of course, the raised age had to do with juveniles being charged as adults. And, of course, that lowered, that lowered the, the, um, the age of criminal responsibility and determined whether or not a person juvenile would be tried in an adult court or through adjudication to a juvenile court. And that made a whole lot of difference. So those were the three changes that needed to happen. We were successful in that. So now you're saying you have other criminal justice reforms tweaks to make to bills that were already passed. What's the purpose of passing a bill if you're going to roll it back? If that was the case, you should have left it alone from the beginning. But that's not the case here. So now we have rollbacks on bail reform. There's no specificity. There's been a few words, some things that have been said about what's going to happen with bail reform. But the other part is that what specific criminal justice reforms are you talking about? And why, how, how come they haven't spelled those out? It's a big secret now. So there's a big concern here, and it's a big concern in the advocacy arena. Anything you'd like to add? We have a lot more to do in terms of making our criminal legal system not punitive, but make it more transformative and more restorative, because no matter... I think that the system should not just be about punishment all the time, that you should also think about the other piece about that, and that's the restorativeness, that's the opportunity for redemption, and that's the opportunity for second chance. The way the system is designed, carceral system is designed, is punitive, so that people don't have a fair opportunity, and especially with the systemic barriers that are built in for people who have an impacted by the carceral system, doesn't create opportunity for them to fully reintegrate back into society. That needs to happen. If you're talking about changing something, that needs to be changed. 
And Victor Pate is a formerly incarcerated person, a longtime activist, and works with uh, uh, the, the organization of New Yorkers who are uh, trying to eliminate the use of solitary confinement. And Corrections Commissioner Louis Molina's head of security was drunk behind the wheel in 2020 when she crashed into another car, sending it into a tree on a Long Island, on a Long Island highway, and then fleeing the scene. Captain Develle Williams, 38, is serving as Molina's confidential assistant in charge of his security team, despite pleading guilty to that drunk driving offense. Her high-profile assignment comes with a vehicle issued by the Department of Corrections. Williams' record also includes the loss of 10 days' pay for filing an inaccurate and incomplete report on a use-of-force incident. And the case involved an incident in 2020 was resolved on March 10th uh, relating to a disciplinary case relating to her DWI is still pending. The captain has filed a lawsuit against the department alleging her previous supervisors discriminated against her by labeling her chronic sick and insisting she return to work. Mayor Adams was at a press conference uh, over the weekend and was asked about the case wasn't aware. Uh, two, it's a temporary assignment. You know, they post in to get someone to fill that assignment. And three, listen, I, I, I just love Commissioner Molina. Love him. This is the first inning of a nine-inning game. And during the inning, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that's happening. But at the end of the game, we're going to win. The guy's the best guy for the job. First Latino to hold a position. Sincere. He's there early in the morning. He's committed. He's dedicated. Rikers was a mess. The mess didn't start January 1st. It has been a mess for years. Molina is the right person. I just have the utmost uh, faith in him. I just love the guy, and I, he's going to do an amazing job as a commissioner. What about the price, though, even on a temporary assignment, is it appropriate for him to hold that role? Yeah. I think that Commissioner Molina made a decision, temporary, and whatever he decides, I support him 100% because he's going to get it right. He's going to fix Rikers. And that's the mayor. And finally, comedian John Oliver did a skit the other day on the uh, – availability of people's tracking information to private companies and package and repackage that information and send it out to private companies giving uh, detailed information about internet users to commercial sources that really are unregulated can go anywhere um, he then uh, towards the end of the program did something that was a bit unusual he showed a packet of information he said had, was gathered in the same manner from members of congress which he then threatened to make public we could, for example, uh, use data brokers to go fishing for members of Congress by creating a demographic group consisting of men aged 45 and up in a five-mile radius of the U.S. Capitol who had previously visited sites regarding or searched for terms including divorce, massage, hair loss and midlife crisis. We could, we could call that group Congress and Cabernet and then... <laughs> Target that list with ads that might attract those men to click, like marriage shouldn't be a prison, or can you vote twice? We could also throw in, do you want to read Ted Cruz erotic fan fiction, just to see what would happen. And if anyone clicked, we'd be able to harvest even more data from them, which we could then theoretically take steps to de-anonymize. Now, am I saying that we're actually going to do that, collect all that raw information and store it in, let's say, a manila envelope somewhere. Well, I am sorry to disappoint you. We are not going to do that. 
why would we when we have already done it? Because all that raw data... We ran those three targeted ads this week in the Capitol Hill area, and to give you a sense of just how many clicks we got, it was very much not zero. <laughs> do you want to see more? Because I do. Please, come with me. Because... Let's... Let's start with the very first hit that we got. It came at 3.35pm on Tuesday afternoon from around the Embassy Row area, when a man fitting our demographic description clicked on the Ted Cruz ad, meaning that we now have his IP address and device ID, and also know that he did it on an Android phone, so we could now take steps to identify him, just like we could with all these others who clicked on one of our ads in the Capitol Hill area this week, including at least three who may have been inside the Capitol building itself. One of whom clicked on the Can You Vote Twice ad, one of whom clicked on the divorce one, and another who clicked on the Ted Cruz erotic fan fiction, which was distressingly popular. And if you're thinking, how on earth is any of this legal? I totally agree with you, it shouldn't be. And if you happen to be a legislator who is feeling a little nervous right now about whether your information is in this envelope and you are terrified about what I might do with it, you might want to channel that worry into making sure that I can't do anything. Anyway, sleep well. That's our show. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Good night. Oliver describes data brokers as part of a multi-billion dollar industry that encompasses, quote, everyone from credit reporting companies to these weird people finding websites whenever you Google the name of your friend's sketchy new boyfriend. And that's some of the news for Monday, April 11th, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening and don't let them track you.